Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Steve Levine about developing your company's multilingual skills for a competitive edge. Stephen Levine, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Wonderful to be here, John. Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm super excited to have a nice conversation with you. Uh, You have expertise in bilingualism. Uh, We'll talk more about your book. We'll talk more about your company and and some of the work that you do. Today, we're going to be focusing on the importance of organizations developing their company's multilingual skills for a competitive edge and a global marketplace in a globalized world interconnected where we're constantly working with people from other backgrounds, whether they be customers, suppliers, employees who are you know part of a distributed workforce. Uh, so I'm super excited about this conversation. As we get started, I wanted to share Steve's bio with everybody. Steve Levine is the author of America's Bilingual Century, how Americans are giving the gift of bilingualism to themselves, their loved ones, and their country. Based on a decade of research, plus hundreds of interviews with language teachers and researchers, as well as bilinguals, this foundational work puts forth a new vision for America, one that Steve maintains is already coming into focus throughout the country, namely an America where nearly all who live here speak English and another language. Steve offers his own midlife awakening to bilingualism as proof that just as it's never too early to learn another language, it's also never too late. He has made Spanish his adopted language. In researching America's bilingual century, Steve spent two fellowship years at Harvard and Stanford interviewing some of the country's major scholars of bilingualism. America's bilingual century is part of the America, the Bilingual Project, an advocacy initiative that Steve began in 2017 to help foster a stronger and healthier nation through bilingualism. In founding America, the bilingual, Steve embarked on his encore career. And Steve, I'm super excited to hear more about that uh, bilingual career and everything that you've been working on and really what it means for organizational leaders and businesses and how we we stay competitive uh, in the future of work. Uh, before we launch into that conversation, however, anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background, your personal context? Well, John, thank you so much. And I'm I'm really happy to be speaking to uh, business people and uh, human uh, capital executives. Um, Yeah, what I should say about my background is that it's uh, rather peculiar in the sense that um, this all started maybe 12 years ago when I started getting serious about learning Spanish. And I would casually, and by the way, I was a business, uh, I was a CEO of a company that that my wife and I started way back in the late 80s called Levenger. And, uh, but I would casually mention 
at cocktail parties or whatever that I was studying Spanish and, and people said things that really surprised me. Uh, on the one hand, uh, they would say things like, well, why bother the whole world speaks English? Or why bother learning another language? Technology is going to make language learning obsolete. We're going to have these Google implants and it's all going to be cool. Um, other why bothers were, well, you know, programming is a language and that's what we should be teaching kids today. And then on the other hand, I met these people who were um, professionally bilingual and were using their language skills in their profession and, uh, and, and loving being bilingual. I've never met a bilingual who didn't love being bilingual, who, whose bilingualism wasn't a big part of who they are. And, uh, and not only that, they, they were in the process of uh, having their children become bilingual. And they were talking about dual language schools and how exciting that is and, and so forth. So I was seeing this kind of conundrum in, in America. I mean, on the one hand, all these people saying, why bother? It's not worth it. And on the other hand, these people super excited about bilingualism for themselves and, and for their country or their children. And so... Uh, Although I was a businessman and had been a businessman for 25 years, um, my first career right out of graduate school was as a science writer and a science journalist. And so it was kind of whispering in my ear that, Steve, this is a story. This is a story about America's languages that I could sense that the old narrative about Americans coming to this country and abandoning their heritage languages and because they were proud Americans and patriotic and just wanted their kids to speak English without an accent. I had a sense that that narrative was kind of out of touch with what was actually going on in America. So um, I resigned as a CEO of my company and I, and for my encore career, um, I actually went back to my first career right out of grad school and, and became a science uh, journalist again. And as you say, I, I had the opportunity to, to uh, study at, at Harvard for a year and then at Stanford. So um, it, was, it was a great experience. And the more I learned, the more surprised I came at what was going on, what is going on in the United States. Yeah, thank you so much for that background. And if you'll indulge me for a moment, just because much of what you said resonated with me, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to share a little bit too of my bilingual background. We talked a little bit about this in the pre-interview, um, but yeah, you know, I, I was born and raised in an English-speaking home, studied a little bit of Spanish in high school, um, but you know, just basic stuff, right? And then, and then in my later teen years, early 20s, I ended up spending three years in South Korea um, and then returning to university and studying Korean um, and minoring in Korean. And while I don't use it as much today, uh, 20 years later, uh, that was a huge part of who I was. And I wouldn't say I was fluent in Korean, but I was certainly fluid. I was certainly um, functional. Like I, I worked in a corporate office um, in a tech firm in, in South Korea uh, and did just fine. Right. And so I, I think it, it was, it was a huge part of who I was and was for a really long time. I taught Korean for three years, um, wow. to, to, in America, um, to others trying to prepare to 
to go overseas. And it was just a huge part of my identity. Um, and it unlocked it, like it opened up my mind to a whole new range of uh, different worldview, different culture, because so much of language has culture embedded in it. Um, you know, it's not just the nuts and bolts of the grammar and sentence structure and those sorts of things. There's just so much embedded. And even today, even though I don't use Korean all that much, every now and then I do get the chance and people are always surprised because not many Americans speak Korean who aren't, you know, from Korean families or, or something like that. And I actually have a book coming out here in another month um, called Bluer Than Indigo Leadership that's based on some Korean proverbs. And I, I utilize Korean extensively throughout that book for illustrative purposes. And, and it's been just a ton of fun to tap back into it. And, you know, as I, as I think about those experiences and I think about my time in Korea, for example, um, and so many Koreans would work so darn hard to try to learn English, to be, you know, functional in the world of business. Um, but also my travels in other parts of the world, when I've, I've spent time in other countries, so many people working so hard to learn English or other languages from the surrounding countries and how enriching that was to them and how much opportunity that provided them and their families and their communities. And I think, wow, I, I, I'm really excited you know, to learn more about the research you've done in, in, in your book, because this is only going to benefit American society, I believe. I'm, I'm certainly not a believer in like English as the national language and like get all the other languages out of the schools and everything like that. You know, I, I don't understand that argument because it's, it's so hugely beneficial uh, to us in our own personal development uh, and, and just our worldview and our ability to, to deal with diversity. There's so many benefits to bilingualism, multilingualism. Um, and, you know, now I, I want to connect that to corporations and leadership, we find ourselves in organizations that are interconnected throughout the globe. And I don't care if you're a mom pop shop, you know, here, like I'm in Orem, Utah, a small town, Orem, Utah, you run a mom pop shop with a web, um, with a web presence, and you have suppliers that may be global. Uh, you know what, you're a global organization, and you're going to have to be able to interact with people. And you can't just expect people um, to always speak your language. And, and you, you have to be able to leverage um, lingual, lingual expertise from other people uh, to help you make those connections, expand your networks, uh, yep. reach new customers, all of those sorts of things. So th th those are the types of things we'll really dig into as we continue our conversation. Excellent. Well, you've, uh, you've traveled the world and, and understand that while uh, a good part of the world does speak English, um, <laughs> you, you have to stop short of this, uh, the whole world speaks English. And, and I have a chapter on that in my book. Um, part three of my book kind of examines these uh, myths, these 12 myths that we have. And, and I think that particular uh, myth that the whole world speaks English is kind of dangerous for business people. They have to make and, sure and can I, I, I agree. And can I add, I think the reason why that myth is persistent is I think about my own experience, for example, when I'm traveling abroad, who am I interacting with, right? I'm interacting with exactly the people who would be more inclined to be bilingual and have yeah. English proficiency. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not always interacting with the average you know, person on the street, though, I, I, you know, I've done some of that too, but, 
Um, but yeah, so we, we have this, this, uh, this pervasive kind of an idea that just everyone, when I travel, you know, to Europe, everyone's going to speak English. Well, there's a lot of people that speak English, but certainly not everybody. And, and, you know, they're struggling to understand us just like we might struggle to understand if, if they're, you know, visiting our country. And, and so I, I I agree. I think that's definitely a, a dangerous uh, assumption and in a myth that's worth uh, detangling. Yep. Well, here's how I detangle that. I, I would actually describe it. It's, it's better described as a half truth rather than a myth, because um, while it's certainly not arithmetically true that the whole world speaks English, not even close. However, it is effectively true that the whole world speaks English if you're operating as a tourist and you're hitting the major tourist sites in the world, the major international cities. English is the language of business and of tourism. And those of us who have some decades behind us have seen the change in the world and how much more prevalent English is wherever we travel. And by the way, I am not putting down tourism at all. I'm promoting tourism. I want to be a tourist again myself sometime when we get out of this uh, pandemic. And tourism is good for the tourists. It's good for the economies that they visit. Nothing wrong with tourism. However, tourism is not the most important thing that humans do when they travel around the world. There is professional work of all kinds, um, development work, um, missionary work, business uh, in terms of um, business is probably most important in terms of just the quantity of business that is done around the world. And when you are trying to do business globally, well, there's a there's a expression that I uncovered in my research, which I think really kind of nails it. If you want to buy something, you can do that in your language. If you want to sell something, you can probably finish that sentence. You better do it in the language of your customers or your competitors will. And, and by the way, when I'm saying when I'm saying selling something, I don't just mean stuff. I mean ideas, um, conceptions. If you're doing development work, if you're doing medicine, law, um, these are also selling and persuading. And um, so there's a big difference. The whole world speaks English effectively if you're operating as a tourist, but in reality, the English is like a thin veneer around the planet. And if you're really doing and want to compete professionally, unless you or, or members of your team not only have true professional quality language skills, but understand the culture, you're, you're just trying to, you know, it's like showing up at the big leagues with your shoes tied together. You're just not competitive. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that's a, a great way of framing it. Um, so, so let's talk, dig into that a little bit more. It's definitely good for business, uh, even if you only operate in the U.S. And certainly, if you have if you operate internationally, uh, if you have customers uh, that that speak different languages, suppliers that speak different languages. One of the business people I talk about in my book, his name is Doug Renfield Miller. And he went to Japan to sell financial services. And he was competing against two other big uh, companies to do that. And Doug hired a Japanese 
to be a principal in his office. And this Japanese, Doug spoke uh, French, by the way, but not Japanese. And he hired this uh, Japanese to help him and the rest of his executives understand the culture and to present a Japanese face to his clients. And he tells a story about this one very important client he was visiting. He says, he says, what I learned is that the Japanese are, are very polite and they will offer you coffee or tea when you come visit them. He says, you don't have to drink it, but it, it's just a polite thing to do. He says, well, his competitor, he found out, would go on and says, no, no, thank you, but do you have any Diet Pepsi? And he says, first of all, they probably don't have Diet Pepsi. And secondly, that's the worst thing you can possibly do. You don't ask them for something. And it just showed how out of touch his competitor was with the cultural norms of, of Japan. And as a consequence, not only just of that story, of course, but of, of Doug's uh, way of operating with cultural knowledge, what language teachers call um, cultural competence, that he was able to grow his business very successfully in Japan. And he says it was really because we looked more looked and felt more Japanese, more in tune with the culture. Yeah, and that engenders trust, right? I, I guess that's kind of the implicit point of, uh, at least one of the implicit points of that story, is that we want to develop trust in business. We want to develop trust with other people, mutual accountability. And when we're dealing with people who are from different cultures, speak different languages, uh, they, they want to know that we understand them. They, they want to... Uh, they, they want to feel comfortable with us and working with us. And so, so language is a huge part of that. Now that, as we all know, I mean, you, English is quote unquote, the language of business. And so you can get by uh, speaking English and going in, into other markets and, and whatnot, but man, it, and you don't necessarily have to be the one with the bilingual skills, but, right. but you want to look you know, look at the value of having other people on your team, a diverse group of people on your team with various bilingual skills that can help enrich your business operations, help enrich your perspectives, help reach new customer bases, et cetera, right? And, and when you can do that, it really can unlock uh, many other doors and, and, and overcome obstacles that you may not fully understand. Like you're just beating your head against the wall. Why are we not making progress in this market? Why are we having such difficulty with the supplier, whatever, you know what, magically you can un unlock many of those problems when you just have people that understand the culture, have that cultural competence, like you said, in, in bilingual skills. Yes. You know, in your uh, new book, which I really enjoy, John, the, uh, which I have here on my Kindle, the uh, alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, you talk about the power of listening. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? 
Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. There's nothing like the power of listening in the language that your customer is most comfortable with. And Americans can get confused sometimes because they think, well, this person speaks English well enough to do business. Well, maybe, but is that the most comfortable language for that customer? And that's an important point. One of the um, people I interviewed and is in my book is a, a woman named Lois Melbourne who had a software company and she was trying to sell, it was actually HR software and she was trying to sell it uh, throughout Europe. And she realized that she needed professional language skills to do these sales presentations in France and Germany. So she hired a guy named Andy Simmons, who's an American polyglot, polyglot. And he, he recounted this, you know, that when they'd call on these French firms and, and the French executives, most of them spoke English fairly competently, but they said to Andy he says, listen, unless you're going to present in French, just don't bother. It's not worth your time or our time. And he says, you know, when they get upset, well, when they have a problem with their software, if they have a problem, they want to be able to pick up the phone and yell in their own language and have somebody understand what they're talking about without having to struggle in their second language. So the CEO, Lois Melbourne, was wise enough to realize that, hey, this isn't about me. It's about my customer. I'm not, and, and Andy, because he spoke French fluently, could listen to the customers in their language and present to them in their most comfortable language. And she successfully grew her software international business throughout Europe with Andy's help. So she was humble enough as a CEO to understand that the power of listening. Yeah, the power of listening, it's super important. And of course, people are going to be more comfortable um, when they can feel heard, listened to and heard and really understood in their own native language. Uh, I think that, I mean, certain, just think about yourself. You know, if you have a, a second language um, that you're even half proficient in, you know, and, and so people assume that you understand everything, are you going to prefer to have a really deep, engaging conversation with someone in the second language or in your primary language? You know, I think pretty much everyone's going to say in their primary language. Um, and I, I say, I, I would 100% agree with that. And I, I got very proficient in Korean and I was very comfortable having conversations with people, but you know what? Like when I found myself, um, there in the corporate setting, I found like there's whole new, every meeting I was in, I would learn like new vocabulary. Right. And so you learn a lot through context, but you know, it, it was a constant learning process and that does kind of like sap your energy, <laughs> you know? So, so I'm constantly trying to pick up context clues and understand what people are talking about, looking up words um, that I don't catch, things like that. And even though I feel like 
pretty darn proficient in this setting. Now, all of a sudden, I'm in a new setting, and I'm not as proficient there because I don't know all the vocabulary. Uh, and so you're continually learning. So just imagine that's your situation. And then, you, like you said, you're trying to have a difficult customer conversation. You're trying to have an IT conversation. You're, you're having a performance conversation with one of your employees who works you know, abroad. All of a sudden, that's really hard for them to fully grasp everything you're talking about, even when both people you know, are pretty prof- proficient in that language. So it's definitely something we want to carefully consider you know, how to leverage bilingual skills within our teams. That actually gets me to my last question, I think, for today, and that is, you know, what what are the best languages? If if I personally or anyone listening, you know, they're thinking, what language should I try to learn myself? And it's never too late to learn a language. Um, you know, I, I learned Korean uh, as a young adult. Uh, you talked about learning Spanish. It's never too late. And there's so many tools, so many apps, so many great software um, uh, solutions that can help you learn languages. Um, it's never too late. So if I'm deciding I want to try to learn a language, what might I focus on? Or if I'm just trying to think what what bilingual skills would be really most helpful if I am reaching out and trying to build out bilingual skills on my team, what would you say would be the, the most important? Well, it, it, it depends, of course, on what your business is and what your goals are. Um, I will say this, though. Um, if you know, none of us can be uh, language professionals in all the languages that we might encounter if in our business. Um, I think being, having one adopted language, which is my term for taking one to heart and living it uh, for the rest of your life, uh, gives you all sorts of um, advantages and, uh, and even cognitive health uh, advantages to do that. Um, and I think as far as which language, I think people um, will find their own answers to that. The language that is most meaningful to them. Maybe it's a heritage language that their grandparents spoke and they're returning to that, which is happening widely in America, by the way. Or it's a language that they think is, is going to be uh, professionally important to them, whatever that might be. Uh, or it's the language of a, a spouse or in-laws, which is often the case too. You know, you marry into a Greek family uh, or into a Spanish-speaking family or a Russian family. So I think people can find their own um, and will find their own, and I encourage them to do that. I will also say this, there is great power for business people to employ what I call buds of bilingualism. And by that, I mean the pleasantries, the um, hello, good morning, thank you, um, this food is delicious. I was skeptical when I started my research. They says, why, I'm, I'm going to sound like a tourist. Why should I go out of my way to sound like a tourist, you know, with this kind of phrase book uh, or guidebook uh, language? But I'll, I've, I learned I was completely wrong that the effort you make to say these niceties in whatever country you go to has huge return on investment. People appreciate you trying. It's a recognition of saying, you, I recognize that you have a culture and a, and a language that's different from mine. And I'm willing to sound like a child to be vulnerable and that power of vulnerability and no Google Translate is going to convey that caring and that vulnerability, which is immensely important and powerful. 
Yeah, I, I really love that. And that really rings true to my experience. Uh, talk about feeling like being completely vulnerable when you're when you're learning a new language and you're thrown in the deep end. I remember my early days, I, I really I, I went the immersion route. And so I'd studied Korean for a couple months and then I find myself in the country and I just go immersion. So I'm like, I'm trying to only read and speak and listen and just like trying to get it. And man, the first six months, I'm just like, I'm like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I mean, I, people are so kind, they're listening, but they, they're so appreciative of, yeah. of, of the effort that I'm making. They can see the effort that I'm making and they're yeah. so patient and they're so helpful, like trying to help me, you know, find the, the right phrase or, you know, these sorts of things. It, it went a huge long way and they recognize the vulnerability. They recognize the humility that it takes to do that. They recognize the effort and they understand that the vast majority of people aren't willing to do it. And so now you've demonstrated yourself as someone who cares enough about them to work so hard to try to speak in their language, to understand in their language, to, to speak to them in their language. It goes such a long way. Um, I, and I remember an encounter. So after I, this was, you know, two and a half years in after I'd been living in Korea and I'm, I'm working at LG Electronics the corporate headquarters. And I, I actually am in a meeting. I'm, I'm like the only white guy there. Like everyone else is Korean. Um, I'm the only foreign person and I'm there and I'm, you know, I'm just there and, and doing the work and, and in this big meeting and the CEOs there doing this big presentation. And afterwards, I think because I was novel, you know, like I was the one white guy, like some, like my boss introduced me to him he's like, Hey, I, I just want you to meet this, this guy that we have on our team. And so the whole time, I'm speaking to him in Korean. He's speaking to me in English. Like we're swapping back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we kind of joke about it after a minute because it, it, it was kind of a humorous situation. His English, I mean, he was, his English was perfect. Um, my English, my Korean at that point was pretty good. And so, you know, we communicated very effectively. Um, but, but uh, like immediately, like a connection was made and he, he recognized the rarity of that. And, and saw the value in what I was trying to do, even though I, I could have gotten by just speaking in English, of course, um, but I was making that effort. John, when you're telling me that story, I'm envisioning the two of you bowing figuratively to one another by speaking the other's language. Bowing um, literally <laughs> first, yeah. because it's Korea, um, right. do, doing a formal handshake. And then, yeah, like literally that's what we're doing to start the conversation. And then figuratively, we're continuing to just show honor and respect to each other that way. Absolutely. So one final thing I'd like to share with our listeners, uh, particularly those who Americans who are doing business overseas and operating in English, um, is what I call HAMS bias, standing for heavy accent means stupid bias, which by the way, I have been I have been a perpetrator of that myself on more than one occasion. And when we encounter people who don't speak English perfectly well, it's almost unavoidable that we're going to conclude subconsciously sometimes that that person just isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. You know, not all the lights are on in the chandelier or something, which I'm sure your Korean friends, at least some of them, concluded about you when you were struggling with the language as an adult. And the reason this is important to recognize is that if you're an American executive working overseas or in a leadership position, um, it's, it's a pitfall you need to be aware of because it could well be 
that the people who speak English best are not your most talented people in particular domains. And, I, and I'll tell you briefly the story of uh, Bill Johnson, who I interviewed for my book. He's, he's in the book. Uh, he was a Chinese, he is a Chinese speaker. He's an American born Chinese speaker. And he uh, worked his way through uh, Otis Elevator and, um, and got a job with the uh, Finnish company, Crone, a big elevator company. And he was responsible for China. And he moved to China. And at the time, they were doing $70 million in business. And the Chinese office was operating in English because that was the edict that was handed down from Finland. You know, their whole worldwide operation would operate in English. And after a few months, Bill said, this just isn't working. And his Chinese was good enough. He, he just, he made the decision, no, we're switching to Chinese here because that's the native language of everyone there. And he told his boss at, uh, in, in Finland that that's what we're going to do. And he was able to then see the true talent that he had in his executive ranks. It wasn't the people necessarily who were best at English. And he grew that, that division from 70 million to 3 billion. Now, it wasn't all, all, you know, it wasn't completely due to switching to Chinese, but Bill said that was a very important part of it. Yeah, that's a great story. And again, consistent with my experience, um, language ability doesn't necessarily mean anything in, in relation to their, their knowledge, skills, abilities in the disciplinary area, you know, in, the, in their professional roles that they perform. Um, but it also speaks to the importance of like trying to develop good bilingual skills because those biases exist. Uh, and we do have to be able to mitigate, you know, the negative impact of those biases and try to uh, uh, tr still try to develop relationships with people um, yep. to, to help the, the business move forward. Well, Stephen, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. I, I feel like we could continue on and on because we both are passionate about this topic and the role it plays in, in global businesses. Um, before we close for today, however, I just wanted to make sure I gave you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work, your business, uh, your book, uh, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Sure. Well, uh, my book, America's Bilingual Century, is, as you said at the beginning, um, is available in all the usual places, uh, including on Amazon. And um, it's uh, the book is designed so if you are an adult wishing to adopt a language and to become a bilingual, uh, that's what part one is all about, uh, including something surprising. It's it's not just uh, how, but it's where. You have to be able to answer eventually the question, where will my adopted language live in my life? Uh, part two of the book is all about raising children as bilinguals, even if you're not. And there's uh, some amazing things going on in the United States in that regard. And part three uh, is the, uh, the busting of these myths that can kind of wrap around our axles and, and, just, and um, get us off track. And uh, so that's kind of a, that was a very fun part to, uh, to write. So uh, as far as getting in touch with us, the America the Bilingual Project, you'll find it online. Uh, we have our America the Bilingual podcast that we... Uh, we do reporting on bilingualism in America, and um, it's uh, the surprising thing is that bilingualism is much bigger and more robust already in America than most of us realize. 
and uh, it's fun to see it grow. Thank you, Steve. That's wonderful. I really appreciate um, everything that you shared with me and with my listeners today. I encourage listeners to reach out, to get connected, find out more about what Steve and his organization can do for you. Check out his book. Um, Really think about the value of multilingualism in your organization, how that can help your business. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.